Welcome to the Product Power Up Podcast, where you'll learn how to take every aspect of your product business to the next level. From product design to product sales, crowdfunding to retail, operations to marketing, we talk about it all. Now, let's power up your business. Here are your hosts, Emerson Hammer and Russell Steed. Hey everyone, welcome to another Product Power Up podcast. We're really excited for our guest today. We have Jorge Aranya with us today. Um, and we're going to get into some pretty interesting topics um, about how to leverage um, international trade relations, primarily with Mexico and Nearshorn and uh, various other topics like that. So we're going to jump right into it. Um, so Jorge, thanks for jumping on today. If you could just kind of give us a brief history of, of you and your businesses and things that you're, you're working on right now, that'd be great. Well, thank you very much, guys, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be online with you guys. And it's a very interesting scenario of doing podcasts. I'm kind of like old school. Uh, you'll figure <laughs> out you'll figure it out by the years of experience I've had that I, I wasn't born in this uh, podcast era. And <laughs> that we, but again, we're trying to adapt. Hey, well, you're able to log in. So, I mean, that's a, that's a plus. You, you logged on. So that's the first step. <laughs> yeah, that's a plus. Well, to give you a, a brief history of my background, I've been about 35 years in the manufacturing slash service business environment in the California slash Baja California region. So that means touching both the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, I've been involved in software development from uh, digital imaging to OCR with uh, optical character recognition. Uh, data entry for non-OCR products, transmitting data back and forth over the border into the U.S. for uh, financial processing. And I moved from that after 10 years of doing software development and networking and all of that, I moved to, into the manufacturing industry back in the 90s. And I've been doing, I've done uh, satellite receivers. We did 16 million satellite receivers here in Tijuana. We've done uh, about, 3 million TV sets, which Tijuana was known as the uh, biggest TV manufacturer of, of the world, and went into the furniture business for a while to understand that part because Tijuana is def was definitely a very good op operation for, for building furniture. And then gradually I moved on into the product consumer goods environment with um, a very big headphone company uh, that was very big in back in the uh, early 2010s. And then I finally spent off into our own business, which is very focused into in forward logistics, um, fulfillment distribution, and reverse logistics for consumer products in the, in the region. Well, that's kind of like a, a brief history of, of what I've been doing. So sounds like a serial entrepreneur right there just one thing to the next thing and just hustling it man that's awesome that's cool um so yeah, give us kind of an update right now you're talking kind of talking about, about forward logistics um and the product-based business kind of give us a little maybe a summary of what that current business you're with working on right now or you're with right now um and kind of some of those services and the niche you guys are servicing right now absolutely um Forward logistics has been a very interesting scenario recent, uh, recently because of all of these supply chain constraints that we've been having in, uh, with the pandemic and even before the pandemic. Um, people were looking into multiple options of moving product from particularly Asia into the North Americas. 
And being in the San Diego, Tijuana region, which is a very particular region, we're right in the middle of two major ports. And it's basically the Long Beach port slash Los Angeles port and Ensenada. So um, that has been driving a lot of business because of the congestion north. It's been driving a lot of business on, on the south uh, of the border port in Ensenada, which is about an hour, an hour and a half from Tijuana, uh, two hours from San Diego. And it's, we've been tackling that portion of the business going from, since the pandemic started. It's been bring gradually in, increasing into moving multiple containers from Asia to through Ensenada port. The important thing that's been going on is that Tijuana, uh, the region of Baja, has been into in manufacturing for many, many years, since 1960s. And this region has gradually been in increasing into in large volume companies. And if you do a Google search on Tijuana manufacturing, you'll find companies like Flextronics, um, Well Challenge, Great Batch from the medical industry, and you'll find consumer electronics like Samsung, uh, Sony, uh, uh, LG, they're doing TV sets. So and Toyota is manufacturing Tacomas in Tijuana. So you'll find every, every area of manufacturing here in the business. So that has been driving routes, new ocean vessel uh, routes from Asia over to Ensenada. And that has gradually increased into now almost like a daily vessel arriving at port. Uh, before it was like once a week, now it's daily and now multiple steamship lines are arriving through Ensenada. So being in the middle of Long Beach slash Los Angeles and Ensenada, a forward logistics is becoming a very, like an almost a must have in the portfolio so that you can handle the, the your, your customers' products coming into, uh, in, into Tijuana or through San Diego to uh, serve service the North American market. Um, one, so for, for some people, I, I, can we define a little bit on the forward logistics? You know, do, we, we've thrown out reverse logistics, forward logistics. So what, what exactly is forward logistics and what, what, how does that contrast to reverse logistics? So from the forward logistics is uh, what we call bringing in either product, finished goods or raw materials from Asia to a distribution center or a manufacturing site. In, that's part of the bringing the product into your DCs, into your manufacturing site, in so that you can have it available to su uh, support your customers. Mm -hmm. Reverse logistics is exactly the opposite: is when you your customer returns a product or a retailer returns a product, and then you have to do something with your product so that you try to recover the value of the product and not have it uh, go into destruction or having uh, be stored in the warehouse. In, in losing and being depreciated and you know how the, the consumer industry right now is is that in 18 months it's basically an obsolete product huh? especially <laughs> yep, in yeah. the technology especially in the technology now it's not even 18 months i think it's more like 12 months so. <laughs> yeah 12 months you're obsolete yeah no okay that, that's perfect yeah i wanted to kind of clarify when you say forward logistics is it final mile or is it you know that kind of the freight piece kind of how you, you mentioned so yeah thank you for, for hitting that exactly and then, so on that stuff, is you're, you're primarily dealing down, yeah, Southern California, uh, Mexico area. Um, you talked about to, uh, Toyota and Mitsubishi and other people are, are manufacturing more down in Mexico. Um, are you seeing that being more of a common thing? As a lot of people with all the trade wars going on over in Asia, the supply chain issues, um, is Mexico experiencing more of a manufacturing presence um, in, in the region? 
uh, or how has that affected the kind of climate of, of manufacturing down in Mexico? That's a that's a great point, Emerson. And um, the the increase of, of volume has brought multiple um, a projects slash uh, services that are basically tagged along with um, forward logistics. So before it was bringing raw material and building in Mexico. Now it's bringing finished goods and, and storing and doing value-added services in Mexico. And we're talking about Mexico because of the, of the lower labor rates, not as, not compared to, to Asia, but lower labor rates in, in the region. And right now, companies have been evolving in not just doing manufacturing, storage, value-added services. Now we're doing more distribution directly from Mexico, distribution to, uh, to FBA, to retailers, and direct to consumer. So it's been evolving as the, as the projects go along. So the bigger, the, the more companies understand the value and the benefits of being in the region, it's obviously it increases the opportunity to evolve and mature as a company and add more services from within. So to give you an example, Trantronics was a big company that they started just assembling uh, headphones and all of a sudden, they not just assemble headphones, now they do the distribution of the headphones from their, from their facility here in, in, in the region. And then, hey, wait a minute, we're, let's, we're doing assembly, we're doing distribution, so how about product development? And then they started to um, evolve another business unit that does product development. And then once they did product development, now they did manufacturing, now they did distribution. Okay, we might as well do reverse logistics and now we handle the returns. So then you then you basically tie the whole supply chain, uh, both the sexy and non-sexy part of supply chain into one single building. And that obviously uh, for all our CFOs in the, in the audience, it's absorption and it's bottom line a positivity so it's it's, it's very important mm -hmm. i think you're you and me are the only people that think there's even an aspect of supply chain that's sexy i think uh, <laughs> most people are like nah it's, there, there's nothing in supply chain that's sexy i'm like no that's there's the, there's some sexy parts in it <laughs> the stuff we ignore that everybody else um so i kind of going off of what what emerson was asking and kind of what you just said over the past couple of years, I have so I know how like different regions can get really known for certain being able to manufacture really well certain things because you have a lot of the labor force is well versed and in, in whatever. Like for example, in Vietnam, northern Vietnam is a little bit better with a little bit more hard goods and and like even tech, whereas southern uh, Vietnam is more with like stitch and, and fabrics. So within Mexico, as you know, and in the region that you're in, um, are there like specific industries that, that there are lots of workers that know how to work within it. You, you've mentioned a few like electronic companies. So is it um, like, can you, well, I guess my question is, is it diversifying? Are you able to like now manufacture a lot more over the past couple of years uh, in, in, in that area? Or um, is it really well known for, you know, stitch and fabrics or is it, uh, you know, electronics and, and what, what can, what can you get done in Mexico um, over the past couple of years that maybe you couldn't have done before? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point, Russell. One of the things that Mexico uh, Mexico is in like in the third wave of manufacturing slash uh, product development environment, and we've been very good in the past in doing um, medical devices. Uh, the recent medical devices, there's clusters of medical devices that are have been very uh, well 
uh, ingrained into the into the different regions of Mexico, particularly the Baja region is, is a very big medical device manufacturer. And the reason being is we're very close to the US and it's it's a regulated product. So office officials that have to inspect the the process, the production and everything, it's a very easy jump into Mexico, look at the process, uh, validate the process, and yes, give it a head, uh, um, the certification to, to continue manufacturing medical devices. Then there's clusters in the central part of Mexico that are very good in aerospace. Um, there's an area called Querétaro that have that they have been very good in developing companies and attracting companies like uh, Safran, Bell and Howell, Boeing, and Embraer. So they're doing multiple components of, for aircrafts. So that's another niche. The Automotive industry has been huge in Mexico for a long, long time, and that is diversified across Mexico. You have Audi building A3s, A4s, you have BMWs, you have Mercedes-Benz, you have uh, Volkswagen, had a huge plant in Puebla. They did the last Beetle, and you're probably you're too young to know what a Beetle is, a VW Beetle, but they did the last Beetle a few years back. And uh, Tacoma, Toyota building Tacoma is now even Hyundai's building cars in Mexico. Um, General Motors has been building cars in Mexico. Ford has been building cars in Mexico for a while. So it's a very huge cluster of uh, um, of automotive. And then in the consumer uh, goods industry, the furniture is huge in the southern part of Mexico. Um, there's a lot of um, uh, artisan, artisan style manufacturers where mm -hmm. uh, they'll do everything by hand. And there's a lot of um, industrial manufacturing where there might be some automation, some CNC. And, and projections and products like that. The problem with Mexico and in, in, in the textile industry also um, a lot of textile, but it's very traditional textile. I don't, I haven't seen Mexico develop like the really new uh, synthetic fibers that that you see in Vietnam, that you see in other countries where they can build multiple things very fast. It's more like on the, it's more like on the, uh, how do you say, clothing industry, not in hard goods or. or project or products like that so uh, with that specifically are you talking about it coming in like being the textile or the fabrics actually being manufactured in mexico so not right. not necessarily working with the fabrics because you could still import that from asia but Correct. it's actually making those kind of high-tech fabrics in the raw mexico. goods of it yeah Correct. and i think that's one of the major things that mexico has the third wave the third opportunity to understand that manufacturing is not just assembly and one of the major things that uh, the non-benefits or the benef uh, benefits, depending on the perspective, is that Mexico does not produce raw materials. We just assemble goods. And being a, a country that just assembles is basically very, it's um, exposed to projects coming and going very fast. So every time there's a wave of a crisis, um, like happened in 2008, and everybody went to China because the labor pool was a uh, on, under a dollar fifty, in Mexico was at three. So obviously you were saving fifty percent on labor, but China was able to develop raw materials. So obviously then they're, they're now becoming a manufacturing powerhouse. In Mexico, we we do lack that part. And from the nearshoring perspective, which is some part of the topic of our, of our, our talk today in the podcast, is that a lot of the nearshoring uh, companies are bringing components and doing final assembly, doing postponement and having that flexibility of packaging towards or toward different customers, sending it to customers directly, 
having the opportunity to place orders and, and sending it the orders within 48 hours of a customized good. And you can't do that for Mexico. So nearshoring is becoming that, um, that favorable portion for Mexico. But for Mexico to become a real manufacturing powerhouse, we need to be able to develop raw material in, so that companies are like, like, would say, yes, this is where we need to be. This is where we, um, our bottom line is going to increase considerably if we are able to manufacture everything in Mexico, including raw material. So that's kind of like the biggest challenges. But from the nearshoring perspective, nearshoring is like step one. And then you gradually develop into a phase two approach where you start to uh, source more things regionally and then obviously make it very important for uh, to have it everything here close by. Why do I feel like Jorge is going to be running for like president of Mexico sooner, like the minister of, of business development of the country? Like this is my five-step plan to bring manufacturing to Mexico. I feel is what the Jorge is going over right now. So vote, vote for Absolutely. Jorge. <laughs> Absolutely, I could, I could, I could do that. But it's, it's, I've, been, I've seen, I've seen a couple of things that the Mexican government does not really um, sometimes are uh, favor this type of manufacturing because, like, like everything, we we want to be able to develop things, also create um, uh, intellectual property, create uh, products. Uh, we we produce more cars. I think we're the second country that produces more cars in the world. And there's not a single Mexican car company. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's a, it's an interesting thing, right? So it's like, oh, what's got what's going on with Mexico? So that yeah, that's it's very important. <laughs> no, well, that's good. Well, I think I just like summarizing what you just talked about before is mm-hmm. uh, Mexico's strength. Then uh, how you can add a value add in Mexico is the assembly components. You're not going to find the raw goods necessarily in Mexico. Yeah, but the yeah yet with Jorge in charge, he'll bring it. Um, but uh. But right now it's more of the assembly components. Maybe you get the raw goods from from your suppliers over in Asia. You're bringing that over to Mexico, taking advantage of um, the Mexico labor rates and being close to to the U.S. Um, to be able to control maybe a bit more of your finished goods supply um, and demand from that point. And like what you said too, as far as like customization, uh, if you're adding customizations to end details, if you're doing some embroidery or some stitch or uh, logos or I'm not sure what other value adds at the end to customize a, a product, uh, you can do that close to home um, mm-hmm. and take advantage of those labor. So I think those are some key key points to to nearshoring. Um, and so just kind of clarify nearshoring, basically is bringing those operations, not necessarily back to the States, but bringing it to Mexico and take advantage of those labor rates um, to to get things just in time inventory kind of back and not have to deal with the huge issues of transit times across the ocean and, and things like that. Um, so something I've actually been working on, uh, or I, tried, I looked into a little bit ago, was bringing some uh, textiles, uh, manufacturing bags and stuff like that to Mexico. And I thought it was really interesting. As far as like a bag manufacturer, working with a Mexican um, factory is a, a different relationship than dealing with, with an Asian distributor or, or, or manufacturer. Um, it seems like the, the business model in, in Mexico is more of a shelter in place or a shelter company where essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, Jorge, but basically, you would hire a shelter company and that company that hires all of your, your labor and oversees any like overhead insurance and stuff like that. And you pay that to a shelter company. And, but then you have all your employees dedicated to you to manufacture um, whatever you're producing. Is that kind of correct or give more insight into like what a shelter company is, or maybe a more common uh, practice for bringing manufacturing into Mexico, what that looks like. Perfect. It's a, it's a perfect segue into, into that topic. Um, 
companies trying to do business in Mexico uh, for multiple things that we just discussed, we can they can do it in phases. And by phases, it all depends on how how how, how deep you want to get into the waters of doing business in Mexico and, and doing process uh, manufacturing, assembly, distribution, reverse logistics. Phase one is like normally also available in, in Asia and other countries is you do contract manufacture. You find a contract manufacturer and they handle everything. They handle everything from uh, bringing in the goods, doing the manufacturing and transportation of uh, the finished goods back to Northbound. The phase two approach is what you just mentioned, um, Emerson, is when, when you think, yeah, you have enough business uh, ROI um, strategies into your component and say, I want to do a little bit more in Mexico. And then I just don't want to do contract manufacturing. I want to control the process. So if you want to control the process, you have a shelter company that does the back office pro uh, process for you. Uh, what do I mean by, call, by back office? Legal, very important. Compliance, very important. Accounting, very important. Uh, HR, payrolls. Anything that is not related uh, to the manufacturing or the, or, the, or the fulfillment process, you have a company do that for you. And there's multiple ways that they do that. They can do a cost plus. They can do a, a per hour rate added to the hourly cost of an employee. It all depends on the volume. It all depends on on, a, on the process itself, in how much and what the cost and the ROI involved in this to make a decision. So that shelter company basically does the back office, but you send your own staff down there to control the processes, to control the fulfillment process, to control distribution. So that means I need ten people, and they need to go out and get you ten people. I need a hundred thousand square feet of facility. They will do the sourcing. They will do the contracts for the hundred thousand square foot facility. That's kind of like the shelter company, because and the Mexican entity of the shelter company is basically doing business in Mexico for you. And then once people start with shelter companies, they normally have an an exit clause of shelter companies. I I really like Mexico. I really like the what we're doing with nearshoring. Let's take it to the next step. And the next step is for companies to set up their own. Mexico entity, and ha and then you become your own fully uh, self-sustained uh, company in Mexico with all the goods and the bad uh, things that are come with it, and obviously more cost-effective because you're not paying that overhead for the shelter companies. You're not paying that extra cost. It's basically you set up your own cost center in Mexico. So those are basically the three steps. Contract manufacturers, they have their markups. Uh, shelter companies, they have their markups on labor, basically la labor and back office. And three is setting up your, your own site. And then you basically become a cost center where there, there you have to comply with the international tax treaties so that you don't pay just the cost, a cost plus a little bit something based on price transfer studies, safe harbor studies. And that's what you send down to your Mexican entity. And there's basically no profit there. It's just a cost center. So that's kind of like the three phases that companies uh, take and when doing business in Mexico. And obviously when you start doing business in Mexico, then you, you have to uh, also have some additional partners to, uh, to uh, from, from add to, the, to your supply chain, uh, packaging material, uh, distribution, transportation, then you start building your, your partnerships in Mexico and then you become a very well 
oiled machine and, and using the best of both worlds, especially being so, so close to, to San Diego and North America. So yeah, that's I mean, kind of like the three phases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what you what you just explained, I feel like we could talk for hours about like each specific mm -hmm. one because obviously yeah. it's going to apply differently to different businesses depending on the stage that they're at. Mm -hmm. um, within within Mexico, would you say what would you say is the most common? Is it the just contract manufacturing or the shelter company or like? But what what's the most common way of manufacturing for most businesses? Um, and we're talking probably not like the big huge corporations, but like kind of more the you know, one million to a hundred million dollar mark, even maybe smaller than that. That's a that's a great point, Russell. I think um, you can see this in very in multiple perspectives. But one one, if you're a small to medium sized company, you're starting with like a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, you're basically develop the product, a consumer good that you're putting out on the on on, on social media. Then you most likely will use a, a contract manufacturer in or a contract service. You would uh, hire somebody to do your uh, freight, your forward logistics, your distribution, and your uh, fulfillment, and then your reverse logistics from within Mexico. So that's kind of, if you're small starting up, I would do contract manufacturing. If you're a medium-sized company where you already have uh, product development, you want to do uh, more, uh, have more flexibility on your projects, have uh, what we call postponement, or basically is in uh, how do you say it, manufactured to, to to stock or manufactured to order. If you have that very well defined within your business, then you might go to a shelter company and just have them do the back office, and then you do your operational side. If you're a large company now, you're in the millions of dollars, um, and, and you're able to. Um, and it's all in economies of scale. And the more volume we bring, obviously, the more cost-effective the operation is in Mexico, then that's when you go into phase three and have your your own entity. So it's more like the size of the company is where the drive the driver is of where of what direction you're taking. Uh, companies that just want to understand uh, Mexico, hey, let's use a service provider down in Mexico, do contract manufacturing, do contract services, and then you figure it out if you go forward. So that's kind of like, and there's I've seen companies big companies that go directly to a shelter business and um there's a like you mentioned we can talk for hours about shelters that you can even set up your own entity in mexico and have the shelter business run it for you mm -hmm. so that means you can also do that so if you're a company that yeah i i really want to be in mexico and i really want to be in there for a long term then you set up your own business and let a shelter company manage it for you it's like outsourcing your accounting staff or or, or mm -hmm. your or financials and just have them do for it and you just focus on the operational side which is that is what we understand and we do product development we do operations we do fulfillment and and let let the other guys do the the back office operation so it is a, um it's a very difficult thing to say and what the distribution is uh, because there's like different areas different regions have multiple have different um ranges in terms of facilities for example the, the tijuana region has 700 manufacturing companies with about average about 300 employees in Ciudad Juarez, which is east of Mexico, going towards um, El Paso, Texas. Uh, they have 200 companies, but their average is 2,500 employees. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a, it, it it all depends on on what you want to do and what your strategy is. 
Uh, and there's small companies that say, yeah, I want to start up in Mexico. And there's big companies that say, yeah, I want to do Mexico business. So it, 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 it depends very, very uh, it, on your business and strategy mm -hmm. model that you have. So. so so basically, I mean, you Mexico can support any size business and, and you can really find what you need there. So I guess it's just to, to move gears or, or to shift gears just a little bit. Um, I, I can make some assumptions on the biggest reasons to go near shoring. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners already know what the pros and uh, pros would be, but I'm curious from your point of view, what are the biggest pros and what are the biggest cons to near shoring and, and manufacturing, or at least doing assembly, let's say manufacturing in Mexico. Uh, the biggest, uh, the biggest benefit definitely is cost. And there's a cost benefit component that is immediate. You it's visible. Then there's the, the second benefit is tariff uh in duty or either deferral or elimination and we can jump into that uh process yeah, that's, a, that's a whole topic right there <laughs> that's another topic either you either you assemble and, and qualify the product for an after product which you avoid duties completely or you bring product from asia into mexico on a temporary basis and then you can export uh, to direct to consumer if your project if your dollar value is under 800 dollars, you can avoid duties completely and those are very big advantages now in duties and in, in, in labor costs. Assembly cost, um, is, it's very comparable right now with Mexico to China, especially if you're manufacturing in the southern portion of China or in the Shanghai area where uh, obviously rates are high now. They're not as they used to be back in the early 90s, in the early 2000s. So it's a very big advantage in terms of, of that perspective. So labor still is it's an issue, um, very big benefit and a very big pro. Uh, and obviously duty deferral or duty elimination is the next, next one. Just to, the, just to clar clarify, sorry, are you saying that labor is very similar from China to Mexico on the assembly side and the manufacturing side? Yeah, it's, it's very okay. similar. But, uh, it's, it, you, there's really not a, a lot of savings of coming in from Asia to China or for going from Mexico to China right now. It's about mm -hmm. an average about three, three fifty an hour. Uh, fully burdened rates will will differ from region to region because of how the uh, demand for labor is like mm -hmm. the same in Asia. So, but it's still obviously less expensive from our our three NAFTA um, how do you say um, partners between Mexico, US and Canada, Mexico is still the, the least expensive one in terms of labor. And being close is another pro, another another plus. One of the biggest uh, things that we uh, promote is that you can be in Tijuana having uh, an operationals meeting in the morning. You can have breakfast, come to Tijuana, have an ops meeting, and then you can be back home for dinner on the same day. It's, it, even because yeah. of being of how close we are, we're in the same time uh, time time zones. Like East Coast Central Mountain is a little bit different, but it's almost the same. You're not 13 hours away; you're only three or three or two hours away. Um, bicultural, middle um, supervision and above staffing that is very important. Uh, if you're labor direct labor, obviously you're not going to have that. Uh, direct communication with the people. A lot of people do not speak English, but uh, middle supervision and above, uh, supervisors, managers, directors, most all of them will will be fully bilingual and fully bicultural. So you don't have that cultural language barrier also that you might have with Asia. So that's another big pro. The the cons, I think we mentioned a few of them, uh, that it, Mexico is not a very big producer of raw materials. 
And the other con is that, uh, for example, 321 or Section 321, which is the under $800 value, it's it's in the spotlight now from uh, the U.S. Congress. And now there's a lot of representatives saying, hey, you know what? There, there's this loophole, which is in a loophole in the in the U.S. Customs law, that a lot of people are taking advantage. So now uh, they're looking into it and saying, "Hey, when are we going to do something about this three to one loophole where uh, on a lot of companies are taking advantage right now of clearing customs without paying duties?" So that might go away. The the threshold might be lower. You don't know. So it it, it becomes a con because it becomes an uncertainty. Some companies cannot bank on that for a long term because obviously you don't know if it's going to last. Uh, an executive um, decision can can move that threshold immediately from one day to the next. Yeah, and, but I guess I guess we also saw the same thing with uh, Trump doing the, the the trade wars. Like he, he, you know, they can make changes with China. They can make changes with Vietnam. They can make changes with Mexico. Uh, the drop of a hat. Oh, kind of, maybe not the drop of a hat, but they can do it pretty quick. Well, and Trump so, did that. It's like one day to the next, we're taxing them. No, we're not. I was like, what the heck, dude? <laughs> How'd you pass that so quick? So I would put that con on you know outsourcing outside of the the country pretty much anywhere, right? So you know, I mean, it is a con for Mexico, but it's also a con for anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think Mexico had there's a lot of pros as far as um yeah, what the location is huge and just for consumer goods, just kind of looking at your total cost into a product. Um, something as I was looking into bringing some production and manufacturing down to, to Mexico is looking at our landed costs. Um, and while Mexico may not have um yeah, the raw goods, for example, that we would still have to manufacture over in Korea, over in, in Asia and ship it to Mexico to, to do manufacturing. Just looking at how much you can optimize your freight though, as far as like when you're shipping a finished good from Asia, you're shipping a decent amount of air. You're probably, depending on the type of product you're shipping, you're gonna have like this air gaps, whatever product you're, you're making. Um, you have packaging included in that um, that you wouldn't have in the raw goods. So that's taking up space. Um, so if you're, if you're shipping, I don't know, like an iPhone, for example, uh, if you're shipping all those raw goods, that's gonna be more consolidated than having shipped an iPhone in a box that has a lot of air in it, all the assembly, it's all organized nicely for the consumer. Whereas in Mexico, they could put that all together, um, but you're shipping the raw goods from, from Asia and you might have a bit more on hand raw materials, but then you can finish and having your end product done almost just in time because you're not dealing with those constraints that the ports are having right now um, when coming what, from Mexico is, over. What's the transit average transit time? Say, you know, we're in Utah. so. If we manufacture a 40-foot container and gets filled down in Mexico, um, ship it up to us, to our warehouse here in Salt Lake, maybe. What's the transit time? I, I, I've got my guess, but do you know? No, absolutely. It's, um, say, for example, any if we cross the border before 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. in the evening when the customs closes and it gets on route into to Utah, you'll have it there within 48 hours. I'm Which not going to say what? I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to say 24 because the drivers can't drive constantly. They, they need to stop. So <laughs> you would have it there in 48 hours in your warehouse. Which is insane compared to, to China and, and Vietnam and, and Korea right now. You ship that over. It's, it used to be a 30, 35 day transit, but it, what is it now, Emerson? Like 120? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, we're looking more like a three to four months transit right now for most of our stuff coming out of Asia to our, to our warehouses right now. Um, so yeah, it's it's just getting crazy with with freight right now and all the lanes, and then mm -hmm. you got 
protests going on. You got natural disasters causing stuff. You got you got the kraken, the kraken coming yeah. out of the sea, eating up consumers. <laughs> Everything's getting shot out from that. So yeah, everything that can't go wrong is going wrong in supply chain. Um, but no, I think that's been been super helpful. Kind of just digging into that. I think companies looking into Mexico, um, there's opportunities. I think it's just understand there's a different relation with companies that have been established in, in Asia of um, either working relations or just understanding um, maybe barrier. I don't say maybe barriers. It's just a di different form of working with a different type of partner um, through Mexico than with, with Asia. Um, so I think just uh, we talked about before this call is just like understanding your true landed cost all in. Um, for example, like we can buy packaging over in Asia, but the freight right now is so insane. If you, if you manufacture just, and you ship it flat pack, just a, a shipping corrugated box, you're probably paying a, a buck or two just in freight costs to get it here. So maybe you're paying an extra dollar to manufacture near shore, but you're not paying that dollar or two in the freight cost from, from ocean shipping right now. And you're um, not waiting for it. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. How much time you have tied up in the cash and whatnot at different mm -hmm. projects. So um, I think looking into your total landed cost of everything included um, and maybe that the opportunity cost of like, hey, if, if Mexico can do this, um, this type of production that you're looking for, um, and you can get it faster once it's completed in production. You can get it in two days versus two to three months. Is is what's the value out of, of having that product in stock and whatnot? That's I think a great point that like your FOB cost from China versus Mexico. Mexico might be higher, mm -hmm. but then you I mean, you also have to look at all the what you call the, the forward the freight the forward logistics like getting it to your warehouse and time is money as well. So especially mm -hmm. nowadays as as supply chains nuts. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I just to add a little bit more into that context, um, one of the biggest opportunities I see is that we need to, when when people approach us about how if nearshoring is something that is uh, worthwhile, definitely it's it's very you need to spend at least an hour two hours explaining the landed cost um, process. Uh, I've seen too many companies not even going forward to the next step of evaluating because they're doing a factory invoice cost to factory invoice cost comparisons. And that is going to be very, there. There are some products that are not going to be even close. You'll have some 1.5 X Delta or 2 X, 2 Delta, 2 X Delta. So being able to understand that in especially small to medium sized companies will understand landed cost comparisons a little bit more than big size companies. And to be quite honest, I've seen large companies uh, not do nearshoring because their purchasing departments are are how do you, are their metrics are based on purchase price variance. So they go factory cost to factory cost. So they don't pull the trigger on making a decision of moving in near or nearshoring because their bonus is going to be impacted because their their costs from factory to factory are going to increase. So that's yeah. the like it's like Emerson mentioned, and then another thing. Is, so landed cost, landed cost is very important, and then the business model. If our our my my Chinese colleagues are very well oiled machine doing high volume, low mix projects. If you have high volume, low mix projects, they're also going to be very difficult to beat, even in landed costs down in Mexico. But if you have a low volume, high mix project then Mexico most likely will be an option for uh, for you and you're showing that particular project might be important. And that's a whole other topic of my Yeah, <laughs> my well, that's, answering, so. that's an interesting point mm -hmm. that you bring up, mm -hmm. which so that kind of brings me to one question that I've been wondering this this whole time is, is there a situation where you wouldn't want to 
um, you kind of gave us one, but where you would not want to nearshore or manufacture in Mexico and it would make more sense, you know, somewhere else. Is there anything off the top of your head that, that would Yeah, absolutely. That? So regulated products. Regulated products are, are something that if you are in the regulated product industry or have a component of your project that is regulated, then Mexico sometimes, is, I wouldn't say it's a very big uh, option. Uh, steel, um, aluminum, in, especially in raw form, if you need to bring steel, aluminum in raw form, even for temporary imports or transformation, it is very highly restricted. So it's, uh, and that's basically the Mexican government protecting the, the, the industry locally. So that is something that I, that you would need to go into the really huge details of what, uh, before even trying to even consider doing manufacturing is find out if the regulations permitted. And that, that textiles, some textiles are also highly regulated, especially like uh, leather goods. And the shoe industry, believe it or not, is another highly regulated. And right now, with uh, everything that's been happening in Asia, toys are, are becoming a very highly regulated industry. Oh, really? So toys, even for import into the U.S. or import into Mexico, there it's a, there's they're regulated. There's a lot of restrictions. They need to do a lot of testing to it. So, if you need to go through that process, then it's going to basically wash out a lot of the uh, savings or the cost benefit of nearshoring the project. With some of these regulated, like I guess materials, like you said, steel, um, aluminum, um, mm -hmm. leather, are those maybe items where you actually could source that out of Mexico as a raw good? Is that a possibility? Is that why it's more regulated? Like leather, when I think manufacturing in in Mexico, I'm thinking you know awesome leather made bag, you know just real leather bags. So is that is there enough supply of raw goods there that? you could source it there and then you're not running into as many of those regulations correct in in most if if it's highly regulated or highly scrutinized by the mexican government it's because it's protecting the local manufacturers so you will be able to get the raw materials locally for those particular industries the the one of the caveats to that is the volume um if your project is a high volume uh, you need to make sure that your suppliers have the capacity to give you that high volume raw material percentage so that you can be so that you can produce. Otherwise, you're going to be in stuck in the middle. Like, yeah, I can I can bring it into Mexico and manufacture in Mexico, but I cannot produce the volume that I re that my demand requires. So that's a very big point uh, that you would need to consider. So it's it's different projects. So highly regulated ones are the ones that I would definitely do a lot of analysis, deep analysis on it, and then capacity wise. Is is the supply is the supply uh, able to handle your demand? Oh, that makes sense. I think there's a lot to to mull over uh, as far as just a lot of opportunities. There's obviously um, different niches for different types of products to kind of uh, dive in a bit deeper on that that certain niche. But there's definitely uh, it's definitely worth a look for people looking to change up their supply chain, uh, their manufacturing process, outsource even some some talented labor pool. Um, you kind of talked about back office accounting, um, freight forwarding, different services like that, um, of nearshoring uh, specific roles or, or positions, even administration position, administrative positions, even in Mexico, I think could be a, a valuable option for some companies looking to do, to do that as well. Um, well, awesome. Well, thanks for having. That was a, a really good uh, uh, insight into kind of nearshoring, looking at different options between the U.S. and Mexico, and really. Uh, that's what I'm trying to focus on my career is just international relations. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting where a lot of people 
I mean, I focus mostly on the fulfillment side and we do fulfillment out of, out of Mexico. Um, and a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, how can you do fulfillment out of Mexico or Canada or something like that? And I'm like, well, you manufacture over in, in China or Vietnam, like you trust that source. It's a new, it's, it's kind of thinking of things in a new way and understand those trade relations. Um, and once I think to be in business, you have to, especially in this economy, in this world, you have to be comfortable of using a global supply chain in multiple facets of your business. If it is manufacturing, if it is contract work, if it is um, administrative, get get used to that and take advantage of that. That's going to give your business a competitive edge um, as you look into sourcing those things, materials, people, um, processes. Uh, you kind of have to do that. So um, I think it's really beneficial for our listeners. Um, but yeah, we're going to start wrapping it up here, but we got three final questions. We kind of walk through as we close out the podcast. So, um, so well, the first question is if you had to start a product-based business today, what would it be and why, where do you see the future of, of, of the next cool product or does it maybe a product product you'd be passionate about to, to start? What would, what would you focus that on? Um, cons- consumer goods, definitely, um, because of my user, uh, being a user of consumer goods, uh, definitely, I would start something related to consumer goods. I have a couple of ideas of something I want to do that it's a, basically a, a right now that everybody's mobile or home or home office working. A, that combination or that hybrid combination is going to create a lot of products, really nice products that I would definitely consider starting. And, and give us, give us an example of one of those. What would it be? Would it be like, are you talking about like a work from home desk or gizmo or gadget or what, what are you talking about? Accessories, major, basically more accessories there for your work at home and then slash mobile environment. Because right now a little bit more, we're trying to get out of the of the home office environment now. So having that, the, the piece of accessory that can, a hybrid piece of accessory that can you can take easily in your backpack or in your briefcase and use it at home or use it at, at a coffee shop or use it at the warehouse or use it at a fulfillment center. Those are the type of products I think uh, I would be very excited about. And basically from that, from that perspective, furniture. Right now, I think another another hard um, consumer good is furniture. Furniture uh-huh. is going to be a very, very big um, projects that are, be going, are coming this way. You're going to make a big bougie chair. So when you're president, you have a big bougie Jorge chair, huh? <laughs> but it's yeah, mobile, it's, so you can take it to the warehouse. <laughs> There yeah, it's, you go. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, I think furniture is going to be another one. Um, there's a lot of design groups, a lot of the influencers are doing. Uh, furniture is going to become a very hybrid, uh, very fast, uh, dynamic, changing environment. So it's going to have fast fashion for, uh, for furniture. furniture. So every year you're going to have to get the newest, uh, the newest couch. Yep. <laughs> Don't tell my no, wife that she'll fall for I that. No. <laughs> yeah, it's it's becoming crazy. I think people are are trying to stay away from the build your own furniture now. It's mm-hmm. becoming too too complex. It's so having some doing something and being able to fulfill it directly from or, uh, the region would be something very interesting. So. Yeah, I have some IKEA scars from assembling some IKEA furniture. Some choice words that always get said whenever I buy IKEA furniture. That's for sure. <laughs> so. <laughs> There's a really nice success story about um, uh, uh, how do you say it? Um, sofa, small sofas, recliners that are being built in the region that mm. became a, a craze and they were bought out by another huge company. So they mm. started small doing uh, recliners and now they've been bought from one of those big companies. Mm, so, and, and you can start that very easily, especially in the region. So, interesting. Cool. 
So you started and operated and, and uh, had quite a few businesses of your own in the past. So what is the best piece of advice that you can give someone who's starting a business right now? I think it's, as I mentioned a little bit, you have to evaluate uh, at a 360 perspective level. So you need to be able to understand, um, take advantage of, of the globalization, take advantage of, even though we're with the pandemic, we now we understand that remote working is very easy. So that means being that said, you can use a, a product developer, an industrial engineer that is probably 1500 miles away or three or four or even 10 time zones away. So you, you need to be able to get a, get a grasp of the globalization part and see what you can onshore, what you can nearshore and what you can um, offshore. And if you have a very good strategy that takes advantage of all those three propositions, you you're going to be you're you're going to be in a very good product. You're going to become very competitive, and it's going to be very difficult for uh, competitors to eat your market share. So mm-hmm. that's open up and consider every single time zone in this global economy is is up for grabs. And obviously, you take advantage of the best of everything. Yeah, no, it's true. There, there are businesses that are around that have not done that, that they're the incumbents, they're getting lazy and you can come in with a competitive edge with a slightly better product and a better supply chain or a better um, operation. So that's a good point. Mm-hmm. And then to wrap things up, uh, what is something our audience can do for you? Are you hiring right now? Are you looking for referrals? Um, is there an aspect of your business that you're trying to enhance? Um, what's something our, our audience can can provide for you? Absolutely. If you're interested in, in onshoring, nearshoring, definitely it's something that you can ping us uh, and we'll do a consulting uh, process for you and to make sure that it is something that is viable for your for the companies. We won't do anything that it does not create a win-win situation for 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 our our, our business partners. So, and then uh, where where can they get a hold of you to to do that? Do you guys have a website or an email, or what's the best way for them to, to reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can email me at Jorge Arana. It's J O R G E A R A N A at viastara.com. V I A S T A R A dot com. And you can go to our website. We're, um, it's, it's, it's mostly directly to distribution in Mexico and Latin America, but that's, you'll see that portion where it says a value added solutions. And that's where we come in into the, in the forward logistics and the distribution fulfillment slash reverse logistics operations. Perfect. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Jorge, for, for jumping on and chatting with us today. I think there's a lot of uh, useful information here that our listeners are going to um, be able to apply. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to like, rate, subscribe, and visit us at productpowerup.com to join our community of entrepreneurs just like you.